Let's pray. We'll ask God for his help. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for opportunity to look now at your word. We pray that as we reflect on your word, you help us to understand your magnificent love for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the ways I spend uh, my time as a minister is having lunch with blokes in the church. Yes, I know it's a tough job. Like working in the salt mines or something like that, but somebody has to do it. I have lunch with blokes in the church, and, and I talk to them about how they're going, how they're going as men, how they're going as husbands, as fathers, as workers, that, that, that kind of thing, as Christians. And one question I often ask blokes is this. Do you feel like God loves you? Do you feel like God loves you? It's actually an important question, isn't it? I mean, any other problems we may have as men or as, as workers, or I mean, they, they, they pale into utter insignificance if the God who made us, the God who sustains our every moment, the God who holds our present and our eternal future in his hands does not love us. I mean, if God does not love us, we're in deep, deep trouble. And so I ask the question, do you feel like God loves you? I have to say, generally speaking, uh, the answer of of most blokes in the church is yes. Yes, I do believe God loves me. And then for evidence to to show how God loves them, many blokes tell me about the blessings that God has given them in their lives. They tell me about their good health, tell me about their loving families, they tell me about their good job and how God has richly provided for them financially. Sometimes they'll tell me specific instances of how they they prayed for something and God answered their prayer, even miraculous things that God has done for them. Great stuff. Good to hear. Lovely evidence of the the love of God. But but of course, not everyone is going well in our congregation. Some people are struggling with terrible sickness or, or chronic pain. Some people are facing conflict and breakdown in their families. Some people are struggling financially or they've lost their job. Some people have prayed faithfully for something for years and years and years and seen no visible answer to their prayers. That's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, if you... Know that God loves you because he's given you a nice life and blessed you with things. Then when you don't have a nice life, it raises the question. I was having lunch with a bloke a few weeks ago. Unfortunately, because I've been away, I haven't had opportunity to ask him for permission to tell the story. I'm sure he'd be happy for me to tell the story. Um, I'm just not going to name him because I haven't asked his permission, but it's a bloke who's been part of the church, he's part of the evening service here for many years, he's been uh, at church here for many, many years, and a very godly, mature Christian, and some utterly terrible things have happened to him, uh, to to his family in particular, over these last couple of months. And uh, I had lunch with him just before I went away, and, and I asked him, do you feel like God loves you? And he said in a very, very honest conversation, very honest conversation, I, I thought he said... He said, Jeff, I've been at church for years and years and years here. I know in my head that God loves me. My theology is straight on this. But I've got to tell you this. In my heart, I feel like God is punishing me. 
He says, as I think about what is happening and, and the, the tragedy that is at the centre of my life at the moment, I cannot help but feel that God hates me. Why would he do this? Did you ever feel like that? If your evidence that God loves you is that you have a nice life, what does it mean when life is not nice? When things are falling apart, when life is painful or disappointing, it can start to make you wonder, can't it? Maybe God is punishing me. Maybe he's forgotten me. Maybe, maybe he doesn't love me at all. Well, if you have, have a look with me at the heading of this psalm, um, you see from the you know, you know that the, the headings of the psalms are actually part of the psalms. They're not NIV headings. So... Uh, um, when you read Psalms in, in church, do please read the heading, as, was, as Elizabeth did earlier on this evening. The, the heading is part of the psalm. You'll see from the heading of the psalm, it's written by the sons of Korah. They were the, the, the temple worship leaders in Israel at the time. Uh, it's called a maskeel. We don't really know what a maskeel means. Warren reckons it sounds like some kind of small furry animal, but probably it's, uh, probably it's some kind of a song. Uh, but ha- have a look at me at the heading here. Uh, for the director of music... That's who it's written for, of the sons of Korah, that's who it's written by, and it's a maskeel. And the psalmist, the sons of Korah, they start off by reflecting on the history of Israel. And, and as they reflect on the history of Israel, they know that God has loved Israel. They know that God has loved their ancestors. I mean, the the whole reason they are in the promised land is because of God. He did magnificent miracles. He brought them miraculously out of Egypt. He drove out the nations before them. He established them in the land. He's blessed them with everything that they had. He's loved them. He's kept his promises. He's given them victory over their enemies. As the sons of Korah look at their history, they can be clear in their heads. God does love his people. Have a look with me at verse 1. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land. Nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face For you loved them. History of Israel shows to the sons of Korah that God has loved his people. And so now what the psalmists do, they express their theology. They they say, "We, we trust you, God. We trust that you're still on our side. We we trust that you'll deliver us from our our enemies. We trust you'll keep your promises and keep us safe in this land. The psalmists, they know they need God. And so they trust him and they praise him. Verse 4. Verse 4. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory, but you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long, and we will praise your name forever. 
God has established Israel in the land. They know from their history that he has loved their fathers. And they're trusting in him. They believe that he loves them. But as the sons of Korah look at the circumstances that are surrounding them at the moment, it's a big challenge. Because as they write this psalm, Israel have been defeated by their enemies. They've had to run away. The enemy overcame them. And the nations around them are laughing at them. Saying, you don't even have a God. There's no such thing as your God. Your God does not love you at all. Verse 9. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbours, the scorn and derision of those around us. You've made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. Do you see their situation? They've been defeated in battle. But the thing they can't understand is this, and this is actually quite a unique and, and I think very, very interesting part of this psalm. The thing they can't understand is this. They can't see how they deserve it. They've searched their hearts, the sons of Korah, and they can't think of any way that Israel has sinned against God. They can't think of anything that would merit the defeat that they are suffering. I mean, you see right through Israel's history that when they turn away from God, they lose battles. You see it in Joshua. Do you remember a couple of years ago we did Joshua and Achan when he sinned? Israel lost the battle. A few years ago, those of you who were here when we did Judges, remember bad, sad, mad, all, all that sort of stuff? Um, when they sinned against God, God handed them over to their enemies. Or even, even last year in the book of Kings, when Israel forsake God, when they follow idols, he hands them over to their enemies. But here in this case, they were genuinely trusting God. They were serving God faithfully, And yet they've been defeated. Verse 17. All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us. And made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we'd forgotten the name of the Lord or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of the heart? Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Here they are serving God and it feels like they are dying all day. Does not compute. The sons of Korah can't understand it. They were serving God, and here they are defeated and ashamed. Doesn't make any sense. And and that raises the question, the question that that their scornful neighbours are asking, is God actually for them or not? 
Does God really love them or not? And so the sons of Korah end their psalm with a prayer to God. They, they, they long to believe that God loves them, that he has unfailing love for them. And so they say, God, will you please show this love? Answer our prayers. Rescue us from our enemies. Verse 23. Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Okay, can you see what's here in this psalm? Israel have been defeated by their enemies and they cannot understand why. They, they haven't been unfaithful to God. They were trusting God, serving him. You see how it raises the question of God's love for them. It raises the question of if, if he really is on their side. I mean, look, they look back at their history and it's clear. But, but as they look at their present circumstances, it's not easy to see. And so the sons of Korah turn to God. They say, we do trust you, but we're struggling. We're holding on by the skin of our teeth. Will you please help us and rescue us? The thing is, that's where the psalm ends. It says in your Bible, the next line is Psalm 45. Is that right? That's it for the psalm. We don't know what happened. After this psalm was written, did God rescue Israel? We don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I reckon the psalm ends with a bit of a question mark, don't you? I mean, this is an important question that the sons of Korah are asking. Is God for them? Does God love them? They trust the answer is yes. They've got their theology clear in their heads. But from their circumstances, gee, it doesn't feel like God loves them at all. If you look at Israel in this psalm, if you end with this psalm, it's actually hard to answer the question. Or if you just look at the circumstances of your life, it's hard to answer the question, does God love you? We're left with a question mark. But friends, thankfully, this is not the end of Psalm 44 in the Bible. Yes, I know it says Psalm 45 in the next line. Uh, but, but as a matter of fact, Psalm 44 is picked up later on in the Bible, in what is, what is I would have to say, one of my... Favourite parts of the whole Bible. So can I, get, can I get you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 31. You'll find it on page 1756. 1756. Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul, of course, wrote the book of Romans and he's been talking about how Jesus rescues us from our sin. He's been saying that it's an absolute certainty. If God has justified you, he's sure to glorify you. And he goes on to use... For those of you who are interested in grammar, he goes on to use a series of rhetorical questions that form an a fortiori argument. Uh, rhetorical questions that form an a fortiori argument. Rhetorical question, you know what a rhetorical question is? It's like that. You didn't say, yes, Jeff, we know what a rhetorical question is. A rhetorical question is when you ask a question but you don't expect an answer. Okay, do you know what I mean? 
Okay, it was meant to be a rhetorical question. You weren't supposed to answer. <laughs> rhetorical question. You ask a question, you don't expect the answer. And so Paul asks a whole heap of rhetorical questions, and they form an a fortiori argument. A fortiori, it's a Latin phrase. It means uh, a is all, fortiori is stronger. All the stronger. Uh, in English, you might sometimes call it a how much more argument. And the idea is this. If one thing is true, one really big thing is true, then something else is, something small is definitely true. Let me see if I can uh, demonstrate it for you. Uh, Here is a 50-pound weight. What's the 50 pound weight? Okay, what's the thing that God has already done? Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? What's the 50-pound weight? Can you see it there? What's the big thing that God's done? Actually, a couple of things there, aren't there? Uh, God is for us. Do you see that? Uh, God gave his own son. He did not spare his own son. That, 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 that is amazing that God would do that. It's like lifting the 50-pound weight. It, it's an extraordinary thing for God to do, to give his own son. And so now what's the little thing? For him to graciously give us all things. For him to give us the rest of the universe. For him to give us eternity. Compared to what he has done in giving up his beloved son, it's like, it's nothing. It's like lifting up a two and a half pound weight after you've lifted a 50 pound weight. Can you see what they're saying? No one can stop God from giving us a magnificent eternal inheritance through Jesus. Next verse, verse 33. Again, see if you can see. Ask the question. As you look at Paul's questions, what's, what's the big thing? What's the big thing God's done? Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? What's the big thing? God has chosen us. God has, do you see the word, justified us. That's the 50-pound weight. If God can choose us, if God can justify us, well, then what's the little thing? For him to continue to justify us against any charge that anyone could ever bring. It's nothing. No one could possibly condemn someone whom God has justified. Next verse, halfway through verse 34. Christ Jesus who died 
more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's the big thing? What's the 50-pound weight there? Jesus died, raised to life at the right hand of God, praying for us. And so what's now the little thing? For him to hold on to us. No matter who or what tries to separate us. And here now is where Psalm 44 comes in. Because what Paul does, having established the big thing, Jesus died and rose again as the right hand of God, therefore nothing can separate us from the love of God. Jesus can hold on to us against anything. What he does is he lists a whole list of things that might try to separate us from the love of God. And it's here in this list of things that we see Psalm 44. Because it's one of the things that might separate us from the love of God if we are suffering, defeated, but have no idea why. Have a look with me. Halfway through verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, and here's the quote from Psalm 44, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see what Paul's done here? And do you see how it's the answer to Psalm 44? If you look at your present circumstances, you might be left wondering, like Israel in Psalm 44, you, maybe you're suffering and for the life of you, you cannot see any reason for it. You can't see how you could possibly deserve it. You can't see any point to it. You can't see any lesson to it. From your circumstances, you, you might doubt that God loves you. And, and the Psalm's not going to finally answer the question for you. But the answer's here in Romans 8, isn't it? The answer is in the Jesus who died and rose again and is at the right hand of God interceding for you. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as I meet up with blokes for lunch week by week, I keep on asking the question, do you feel like God loves you? And, and as, as blokes tell me about the blessings that God gives them and the prayers that he answers, I'm, I'm glad. I think it's excellent that God has blessed us with so much. And Warren prayed about it before, didn't he? Giving thanks to God for, for the blessings that we have received. We can and we should be very grateful. And these good things that God gives us, they are evidence of his love. But life's not all beer and skittles, is it? <laughs> things aren't always going to be good. I mean, I just think about the last three weeks while uh, my family and I have been away on holidays. Um, thank you to everyone who's asked us how our holiday has been. My answer has generally been, yeah, put six sinners together in a house. What could possibly go wrong for three weeks? <laughs> we have had a lovely holiday, though. Thank you for asking. But, but let me tell you some of the things we found out while we are on holidays. Uh, a good friend of Carmelina's um, uh, had a triple heart bypass. 
Um, other friends of my wife's uh, discover that their 18-month-old baby has terminal cancer. Uh, the minister of the church where we went uh, on holidays, Aladella Anglican Church, uh, has just discovered that he has got cancer. Uh, while we were down there, the assistant minister of the church, his son was riding a, a BMX bike in a skate park, had a terrible crash, uh, smashed his head, he's got concussion and possible brain damage. Uh, meanwhile, in, in our own congregation, uh, little Lucas Thompson had surgery to enable him to feed through his stomach, he can't, can't swallow. Uh, families of a guy just had spinal surgery last week. A family had been told that their baby may die. Other people are too frail to join us. I mean, we all face tragedy in tough times. And sometimes we can see, yes, this happens to me, this happened to me because of a particular sin, but most of the time it's just like Psalm 44, isn't it? We've got no idea why we're suffering. And we don't see the point of it. And so, friends, it's worth remembering not just Psalm 44, but Romans 8 as well, isn't it? The circumstances of our life here, they are mixed. We'll see good things that show the love of God, but we'll also see the bad things that show the judgment of God. There's one and only one thing we can really hold on to, and that's Christ. Because in him we have sure, objective evidence, whether we feel it or not, no matter what our circumstances are, that's what we need to hold on to. God has demonstrated his love to us eternally in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing in all creation can separate us from that love. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the wonderful mercy and love that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that while we were still sinners, he died for us. We thank you that he is now risen and seated at your right hand, pleading the merits of his blood. And we thank you that therefore nothing can ever separate us from your love in Christ. We thank you that this is true no matter what the circumstances of our lives here on earth. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd so fill us with your spirit that we can see it and know it and take comfort in this eternal truth. We pray it in Jesus' name.